This is Nate Bowling, the 2016 Washington State Teacher of the Year, and you're listening to the New Teacher Podcast. The New Teacher Podcast. Get inspired. If you're a new teacher interested in hearing about the latest tips and tricks to inspire you in the classroom, you've come to the right place. The New Teacher Podcast features interviews with award-winning classroom teachers, the latest authors, and educational leaders recognized for their proven teaching techniques and strategies. Hear the stories of their success and failure. To listen to past episodes, view show notes, or to contact us, please visit our website at newteacher.org. Now here's your host, Anthony Arno. Well, hello and welcome back to our second year of the New Teacher Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Arno, and I want to thank you for joining us today. If you're brand new to the show, I invite you to listen to our back catalog at either iTunes or at newteacher.org. There you can find my talks with nationally recognized state teachers of the year, a few national teachers of the year, one or two book authors on teaching in the classroom, and the most recent episode features my talk with June Scobie Rogers. June is the widow of Dick Scobie, commander of the Challenger space shuttle that exploded shortly after takeoff exactly 30 years ago this year. June is a former teacher herself, and she talks about growing up with a mother who suffered from mental illness, marrying Dick at the age of 16 so that she could raise her brothers, working with teacher in space, Krista McAuliffe, and the famous quote, I touch the future, I teach, and her life after the Challenger space shuttle, where she's created a network of space education centers that have served over 4 million school-aged children. That's episode 15 of the New Teacher Podcast. Well, here in New Jersey, we just had our first week of school, and I know that many schools around the country have already been in session, some as early as early August. But I'm hoping that everyone out there has the best year in their teaching career yet, whether you're a first-year teacher or you're a veteran teacher. Maybe you're homeschooling your child while living in Hong Kong. I want to wish you another successful year at the kitchen table. I know it's hard being so far from home, but I find it really encouraging knowing that you're listening to this show to learn about the latest trends taking place back here in the States. Today I have a very special guest who is not only a state teacher of the year, but also a finalist for the national title of teacher of the year. But that's not the most interesting thing about my talk with him. Neither is his annual road trip visiting former students attending college to encourage them with their studies. Here's what's really neat about him. You know the feeling you get when you see an administrator walk into your room? Well, today's guest is going to tell us what it was like when he heard from his building principal that the president of China would be visiting his classroom during an upcoming visit to the United States. Today's show is brought to you by You Can Do the Rubik's Cube. It's the educational outreach program for the popular Rubik's Cube, which was invented by Hungarian architect Erno Rubik in 1974. Over 400 million cubes have been sold, making it one of the most popular toys of all time. And now you can use this popular icon of our culture in your classroom. You Can Do the Rubik's Cube will provide you with a free loaner set of either 12, 24, or 36 cubes, along with an instructional DVD, curriculum guide, solution guide, 
posters, sign-out sheets, and certificates. And for a very special limited time, if you use the coupon code PODCAST during checkout, you can do the cube.com. We'll even provide you with a free return shipping label when you borrow up to 36 cubes at absolutely no cost to you. I want you to hear my talk with Marsha Graves, a middle school robotics teacher from South Carolina, using the You Can Do the Rubik's Cube program in her classroom. Hi, Marsha. How are you doing today? Hi, doing great. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What grade do you teach and where is your school located? Okay, I teach grades 6 through 8. I teach um, robotics, computer science, and engineering. And I'm at a middle school in Rock Hill, South Carolina, Saluda Trail. And how have you used the You Can Do the Rubik's Cube program in your classroom? Hmm, we probably don't have time for all that because I've used it in so many ways. I <laughs> used it more in our club. I actually started a club at our school, so that is mostly where I use it. And we also have a special class period at our school called Academy Time where you're kind of free to um, expand the kids' minds. And, you know, so I use it in, in that to teach them that they can be successful. Mm-hmm. And what benefits have you seen from your students using the You Can Do the Rubik's Cube program? Well, I have actually seen the kids realize that they can succeed. And we have this rule in my classroom for the Rubik's Cube that you cannot say, this is hard, I can't do this. You can say, this is a challenge, but I'm going to succeed. Have you seen the confidence of the students change since you started using the You Can Do the Rubik's Cube program in your school? Most definitely. I've told the kids, I said, I wish I had a video of y'all from day one. You know, and I, and, I, and I make them commit for several days because it's so easy after that they come in thinking they're just going, oh, yeah, tell me the secret. I want to solve it. <laughs> they don't know that in, in I mean, we talk about algorithms. I mean, you know, in math, there you go. And, you know, and then when they do solve it, they're so excited. And the smiles on their faces and they come in going, can we do the cube today? <laughs> so to our listeners, the program has a loaning library where you could borrow either 12, 24, or 36 cubes for a six-week period absolutely free. And if you mention the coupon code PODCAST, Rubik's will even pay for the return shipment back to them from your school. Awesome. Because you do have to pay the return shipment. It's still a deal. But if you can mention the podcast and not have to pay that, that is most definitely. I was just talking to a teacher from a neighboring school today telling her this. Marsha, thank you so much. It was great talking with you today. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, Marsha. Please be sure to visit the show notes page to see a collection of videos and pictures from Marsha's class. And now, here's my talk with high school social studies teacher, Nate Bolin, the current Washington State Teacher of the Year. My guest today is not only the current Teacher of the Year for Washington State, but also just one of four finalists for the 2016 National Teacher of the Year title. As a State Teacher of the Year, one of the highlights is a visit to the White House to meet with President Obama. As of this recording, today's guest has not yet visited the White House, but he can say that the President of China, with a population of 1.3 billion people, has visited his school earlier in the year, and we're going to talk about that visit. Wow. 
Please welcome to the New Teacher Podcast, high school social studies teacher, Nate Bolin, and current Washington State Teacher of the Year. Nate, welcome to the New Teacher Podcast. Thanks for having me. So tell us a story about a teacher that inspired you as a student, and what do you remember the most about them? Um, I had an, a JROTC instructor when I was in high school, uh, Major Phillips. His name is not James. I call him now. Well, I, I call him Major sometimes, too. It depends. Um, and he was, um, he was there for me when things went bad in my life. Uh, my sophomore year in high school, uh, within about 18 months, I lost my father and two of my uncles who had, uh, who had been kind of lifelong role models for me, all to heart attacks, all in their 60s. And uh, Major Phillips saw me wandering and kind of snatched me up and sat me down several times to kind of set me on the right path and make sure that I didn't fall through the cracks. And I own that. Uh, whenever I, I, I'm given an opportunity to talk to the public, uh, I, I talk about his influence and the impact that a teacher can have on somebody's life. And does Major Phillips know that? Do you keep in touch with him to this day? Uh, I, I do when he does. That's great. Nate, do you remember the exact moment when you decided that you wanted to become a teacher? Well, it's interesting because, like, when I encounter people who knew me when I was younger, uh, they're always shocked to find out I became a teacher. <laughs> it wasn't something that I wanted to do growing up. Uh, uh, basically, what happened was I was in one of my uh, my last year of college, and uh, – I was having a really transformational educational experience. It was in that kind of weird period in American history between uh, 9-11 and the war in Iraq when uh, America was just kind of when, – when, when America was, was kind of you know, uh, swinging its arms uh, at the world. And I was having a real kind of personality transformation. Uh, I had gone from being a, a military veteran to somebody enrolled at the Evergreen State College, which is like one of the most liberal colleges uh, on the West Coast. And uh, I was coming home every day talking about what I was reading, and uh, a lady I was dating at the time basically said, you need a job where you get paid to talk about the, talk about the world. And so I thought I'd become a museum docent, and, you know, I'll go work in a museum, you know. <laughs> and, and she was like, no, fool, like you need to become a teacher. And uh, I basically applied to grad school about three weeks after that. Wow, that's incredible. What were some of your early career aspirations as a, a student when you were younger? I had myself convinced in elementary school that I was going to be Senate Majority Leader. Um, I've always been fascinated by politics, which is why I think it's cool I teach AP government now. And uh, like I, I remember being a, I remember looking at at, at, at politics at a really young age and uh, and being really interested in in the uh, in in like what was happening policy wise and in the the, the way that checks and balances worked. And I, I was fully convinced in like fourth grade that I was going to be Senate Majority Leader. And like I'm glad I'm not. I'm glad I didn't go into politics. Like I realized that. Talking to and trying to convince adult, adults is really exhausting. Like that's one of the best parts about teaching is that like when you're talking to students, uh, they're not a blank state necessarily, but like they don't have preconceived biases and bad ideas about the world. So you, you you can you can you can work with them and you can you can mold their opinions. Like adults have too many things they're invested in that are uh, that are just weird and and and, and kind of nonsensical. And so like trying to convince adults, I find kind of exhausting. So I'm really glad that I'm teaching a nine in politics. Now, as a state teacher of the year, though, how is it now with your interaction with adults versus students? Uh, it's interesting. So <laughs> what what happens is is uh, I give a lot of policy talks, and basically I have two talks. I have a talk about educational equity and uh, how we're not serving uh, kids in poverty and kids of color uh, with funding mechanisms and policy choices we make. And then I have a talk about educational policy, about how uh, the 
education conversation in Washington State and I believe nationwide is very polarized. And so you have basically a a heck no, we won't go kind of rump labor faction. And then you have a pie in the sky. Oh, we can, you know, we can do all these things with no additional funding uh, reform faction. And so I try to speak truth to the middle of that conversation where I think most educators and many adults, many thinking adults are. And, uh, and so that's actually uh, gone really well for me. Now you wrote a blog title, the conversation I'm tired of not having. It went viral with hundreds of thousands of views, and it was picked up by the Washington Post. Nate, tell our listeners, what was the particular message in that post about? Sure. I, I, I was blown away by the response to that post. Uh, like you mentioned, it, it went viral. It was in the Washington Post. It was in the Hedginger Report. It was in the New York Observer. Uh, the Seattle Times ran it. Uh, the message was kind of threefold. Part one is is that this, that ch- children of color and kids in poverty go into go to inferior schools, and that's by design. Uh, essentially, uh, people of means have isolated themselves from people without means uh, through like the great sort, and so like through suburbanization, through private schools, and through through white flight. Essentially, we we have these neighborhoods that don't look anything like the greater metropolitan area that, are, that is around them, and because they're in low income areas, uh, they lack the levy funding that more affluent areas have. The second idea in the article was that I really don't believe that any of this is changing anytime soon. Uh, the people who have insulated themselves from the inequality by moving to the suburbs, uh, by syndicates to private schools, there's no real impetus for them to change anything. I think about the city of Seattle. Uh, 30% of the students in Seattle uh, go to private schools. And if I think about the demographics of those 30%, uh, I'm guessing those 30% are uh, primarily white, primarily from the north end of the city, and primarily upper middle class uh, to wealthy. And so there's no, like, great social movement coming uh, on, on behalf of those students who are in those poorly funded and, uh, and, and poorly, oftentimes, in, in those poorly funded schools. Uh, and so the third point in the article was basically a response to that. And the idea is if we have this, this system of, of, of separate, economically separate but unequal schools, and if there's no policy impetus to change it, then I have to put my energy uh, where I know I can make a difference. And so my policy advocacy has really focused on teacher quality. I, I, I just believe from, from research that teacher quality is the most important in-school factor impacting outcomes for students. Uh, and, I, and so my question is, whenever I'm talking to policymakers, is what are the policies that you're doing how are they getting our most impactful educators in front of our neediest students? And as Teacher of the Year, has that opened up doors to meet with policymakers? It very much has. Uh, I've spoken to the Washington State Board of Education. I've spoken to uh, the House Republicans and Senate Republicans here in, uh, in, in Washington State. Uh, I've spoken to my school board, and uh, I've I've created a, a bit of a following among some of the education activist community and some of the policy wonks here in Washington State. And you're still in the classroom this year, currently, correct? Yeah, I'm st- I'm still in the classroom five days a week. Uh, so, like for example, uh, last week I taught Monday and Tuesday, and then got on a plane and flew down to New Orleans and spoke to uh, a convening of people from a, from the Achieve organization, and then got back on a plane and taught again on Friday. Wow. And so, it, 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 in this moment, what I'm doing right now is I'm basically working a 1.5, uh, but like I I have the opportunity 
to advocate for my students and for policies that put them first. And so it, it's difficult for me because whenever I say yes to one opportunity, I'm saying no to, uh, to another, I'm whether sure. the opportunity be like my classroom or whatever. Uh, but, but this, if, if I'm not going to advocate for my students, then who is? And uh, I have this platform for a short period of time. And so if I'm not going to use it, well, I have it. So this is your year. Nate, where do you see yourself five or 10 years from now? Do you think you'll still be in the classroom? Yeah, no, I, I love teaching. And I, I look at, uh, I, I get asked this question a lot, like, what's next for Nate? And the answer is like, next year I'm going to be in room 306. And so <laughs> I'm not sure I'll be at Lincoln High School for the next five or 10 years, but I don't see myself living in the classroom. Like, I, I love the work too much uh, to do anything else. Um, you know, the, there's complications with the job, and the job is difficult sometimes, but like, I, I love what I do. I have the best job in the world. Like, I, I have a formative role in creating the understanding that my students have on issues of democracy, citizenship, and activism. Like, that, that's, that's, that, that's an amazing, amazing privilege. Um, if I could get rid of grading, I teach forever. <laughs> like, grading is the worst part. Like, the kids are amazing. Yes. Well, good for you, Nate. I'm glad to hear that because I've spoken with past Teachers of the Year that for whatever reason have given up the classroom and it's perhaps one of their biggest regrets. So more power to you. Well, one of, I've, I've advocated at the district level and at my building level for the creation of hybrid roles. So like, for example, uh, my building right now is looking for an instructional facilitator. And what I proposed to my principal was instead of hiring an instructional facilitator and taking somebody out of the classroom full time, create a hybrid role and have one who is STEM and one is humanities and then give teachers leadership opportunities within the classroom. I think it's really unfortunate, like you just mentioned, uh, that so many people who are recognized for being great teachers and, and, and receive awards, uh, they use that as their opportunity to exit the classroom. Uh, I, I see this as an opportunity to bring a focus to my classroom and the work that I'm doing. Whenever somebody wants to meet with me from like a policy organization, um, I always tell them, here's the deal. I'm happy to meet with you. You need to come to my classroom watch my third period class, see my context, see my kids, and then I'll sit down with you during fourth period and we can talk policy. And people who, are, who aren't willing to do that, I'm not willing to work with. And people who are willing to do that, I'm willing to have conversations with. And what is the third period class that you teach? Uh, my third period class is an AP government politics class. Uh, and it's, it's my fourth year teaching the class. And it's, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal class. And that's a great group of kids to work with. What is the culture like at Lincoln High School in Tacoma, Washington? Uh, so Lincoln High School is, is, is a working class. It's in a working class neighborhood. Uh, it is a, it's the highest poverty high school in the county, uh, and it's in a neighborhood that is integrated. And so uh, our, our school, I basically described demographically as a 20, 20, 20, 20 school. So it's about, it, it fluctuates year to year, but it's about 20% black, about 20% white about 20% Hispanic, about 20% uh, Asian, and then about 20% uh, Pacific Islander, Native American, mixed race or other. So there's um, a lot of diversity. What has happened over, yeah, absolutely. What has happened over the last seven years while I've been there is, is that our poverty rate has climbed, and so the economic circumstances for our kids have gotten worse. Uh, but what's also happened is that our graduation rate and AP participation, participation and college going has climbed. And so we're basically proving so much of the ed discourse wrong. We're showing that through better teaching and better instruction, kids in poverty can thrive. You're known for taking 500-mile road trips to support your former students. Tell us about that particular journey and why you do it. 
Uh, it's called the Alumni Support Tour, and the idea hit a couple of colleagues of mine last year uh, when we were sitting during a joint planning period. In our building, we've created a more college-going culture, and we're sending more kids, particularly first-generation college kids, uh, to universities, and we're sending to universities that are kind of far away from where they're from and where they have support. And what was happening was our kids were feeling very marginalized and very isolated where they were. And so what we decided to do was to bring the love to them. And what, what really pushed us over the edge was there was a student who uh, I had mentored and worked with for four years, uh, and her and I were very close. Uh, in fact, they called her Baby Bowling. Like She shared a kind of grumpy disposition <laughs> like I did. And she called me up from Whitworth University, and she was miserable. Uh, students at Whitworth have really low expectations for African Americans, so they assumed that she was actually an African uh, international student, uh, professors, uh, couldn't or wouldn't pronounce her name correctly. People were constantly trying to touch her hair. And uh, she called me up in tears one day, oh. and it went from like a conversation to like a must. And so the alumni support tour is a road trip that we've taken now for the last two years. We head to eastern Washington and central Washington and, uh, and, and break bread with our students. And the best part about it is it's like as an educator, I get to hug the fruits of my labor. I get to see kids who I've worked with for uh, two and three years ago who are now in college and they're thriving. Cool beans. And, uh, yeah, and we're changing the trajectory of their families uh, for, for generations. Like the, the, these students come from poverty. Almost none of their parents are, are college graduates. They're, they're all thriving. They're going to be college graduates. And that's going to change the way that their last names are perceived for generations to come. And how many students did you visit on your last tour, Neat? Uh, the last tour, we went to Spokane, Washington, and visited kids from Whitworth and got it was uh, 14 students we have there right now. And of those former students, what is the most popular major they've selected in college? Uh, there's a lot of political science majors, and I, I, I'll take the blame for that, or the credit, <laughs> I guess. Any education majors? There are some education majors, yes. There's, uh, we have – so I, I always say to people that like my dream, uh, and when I know it's time for me to leave Lincoln, is that when I have multiple former students who are ready to replace me for my gig. <laughs> and so we have – like of that 14 who were at the table, I think there's two education majors, uh, a couple of poli-sci majors, there's one STEM major, uh, and some other people were kind of undecided. But uh, I feel like humanities instruction in our building is really, really strong, and a lot of our kids t uh, tend, to tend to lean toward the humanities. Uh, and I, I, I really love I, – I love asking them, like, what are you taking, and then how does it connect to what we learned in high school, and do you feel prepared? Like, like, and, and the answer across the board is always yes. Like, I felt prepared. And, like, that's, that's the validation of, of the work, and that's why the alumni support tour is so special. Like, you get to see the kids. They show you their dorms. They show their syllabi. They show their coursework, and they're like, you help me get ready for this. And I, I, I love that work. That sounds great. And what type of feedback have you received from their parents? That's interesting. I, I actually don't have a lot of conversation with the parents of alums, but uh, the parents of students who I have currently uh, are really supportive of the work that we're doing. Uh, we know they know that we have high expectations for students. They we know they know that we hold our students accountable. Uh, they know that we have our their best interests at heart, uh, and so parents are very very supportive of the work that we're doing. Nate, a few years ago, you received the Milken Award. Tell our listeners about that award and how maybe a young, excited teacher can learn more about the program. The Milken Award is a fascinating experience. Essentially, there's no known requirement system. There's no known application process. It's all a very opaque cloak and dagger uh, process. 
somebody identified me in Washington state and, uh, and that's all I know. And what ended up happening was uh, they held a surprise assembly in the building. I had no idea about it. Uh, I actually tried to skip the assembly and stay in my classroom and do some grading <laughs> and then got called down to the assembly. Uh, and we were told that the assembly was going to be about uh, our school's increasing graduation rate. And so the superintendent was there. Uh, Washington State Senator Patty Murray was there. Uh, the mayor was there. And uh, I was kind of sitting in the assembly, you know, and then I started to realize that this was not an assembly about graduation at all. And then I realized they were honoring a teacher. And dumb me, I'm looking around the room like, who are they honoring? That's cool. Uh, and, like, it, it was way, way late in the game before I realized it was about me. And I, I was totally blown away. And nope. since then, the Milken Foundation has been incredible to me. Uh, they've, 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 they've elevated my voice. Uh, they share, they've shared my writing. And they've put me in front of policymakers uh, at, a, at a couple of opportunities. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful to them for, uh, for, for their help throughout the last couple of years. And what comes with the award? Uh, a $25,000 no-strings-attached check. And is that for personal consumption or professional development? Yep. No strings attached. It, 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 <laughs> for me, it was, it was for Sally May consumption and student loan consumption. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, for personal consumption. Okay, we'll have a link on that with our web with our show notes. That's great. Nate, as current Teacher of the Year in Washington, you're probably traveling throughout the state to meet with teachers. What is the message that you're sharing with your colleagues and future educators? One of the, the, the most important thing to me is for educators to understand the power that they have. Uh, teaching is the most important profession in the world. None of the other professions happen without teaching. You don't have cardiologists. You don't have app designers. You don't have architects. Like every single one of those career fields and every single person in those career fields was inspired by an amazing educator. And so my message to teachers is, A, embrace the power that we have as educators, and then, B, also be advocates for the profession. Um, Within the profession of teaching, there's a lot of uh, people who are uh, constantly upset, and like being upset doesn't do anything. I, I only operate in, on solutions, and so I, I try to align myself and try to encourage educators to be solutions-oriented and positive about the work that we're doing. Uh, I'm always hesitant when I hear people identify themselves or I hear people uh, define themselves by what they're against. Uh, I try to define myself and identify myself by what I'm in favor of and what I support and what I think works for kids. So for a new teacher listening to this, always remember the power of a teacher. Nate, what is Absolutely. one thing a new teacher can do tomorrow in their classroom to become more effective as a teacher? I would encourage new teachers to seek the counsel of people they respect in their buildings. Um, I've learned some of my most profound lessons from teaching, not from any, any PD session I've gone to, but from going and watching colleagues work. And so uh, my wife is an educator, and uh, I remember pretty early in my career, uh, I watched her uh, in her classroom facilitating a conversation, and it was absolutely amazing. She probably didn't say anything for about 15 minutes. The students just ran a conversation, and she kind of floated around the room facilitating that. So my goal for the next year was how can I get my class to look like that? Um, I would encourage new teachers to just go into the rooms of experienced educators and, and, and to steal. I call it teach lifting, like go <laughs> steal everything. There's no point trying to reinvent the wheel. There's no point trying to bang your head against the wall and solve problems uh, that, are, that, that, that are above your pay grade. Like just, just go and steal instructional strategies from master teachers. And does your wife teach with you at Lincoln High School? She does. I'm in room 306, and she's in 206. And it's great because I teach freshmen and seniors, and she teaches sophomores and juniors. And so I hand her kids and then get them back. And what subject does she teach, Nate? 
she teaches uh, sophomore English and then AP language for, for juniors. So what are the conversations like at the dinner table each night? Uh, it's hard to turn it off sometimes. Um, uh, it, it, it depends on the day. Like if things are going really well, then we talk about like how awesome the kid is. Uh, if things are going not so well, sometimes like I'll bring up a student and she's like, don't mention that child's name in front of me. And so it, it really depends. But uh, we're, we're constantly talking about instructional techniques. We're constantly talking about best practices. We're constantly talking about how we can better, get better at our craft. In all the speeches and appearances that you've made as the current Washington Teacher of the Year, what is one thing you've collected during your travels that has a very special meaning to you? Uh, what a great question that is. Um, I went down to Oakland, and Oakland's a really fascinating city to me. Uh, I live in Tacoma, Washington, which is a working-class city. Uh, about 32 miles south of Seattle. And to me, like growing up, I've always thought about the analogy uh, between like Oakland and Tacoma and Seattle, San Francisco. Uh, and so I went down to Oakland and spoke to a group called the Marcus Foster Foundation. And the Marcus Foster Foundation is named after uh, Oakland's first black superintendent who was assassinated in the 70s. And they invited me to come down and be their first speaker at their Marcus Mines uh, Forum, which is like an educational TED Talk event. Right. And uh, the, just the, the love that came from that community was amazing. And uh, while I was there, I actually met another Milken educator uh, who works in Oakland's uh, school district, and she's in charge of, uh, of discipline, and, uh, and she's kind of the, the ombudsman for discipline. And just being able to, to, to see another community who is dealing with the same issues that we're dealing with here in Tacoma and grappling those issues proactively was really, really energizing to me. Um, I, I love being around solutions-oriented people, particularly people who are advocating for students in poverty and students of color. And like I, I, I feed off that like Pac-Man feeds off power pellets, power, power pellets. And so like seeing that happening in Oakland uh, really energized me to come back to Washington State and do the work. Now, did you grow up in the Tacoma area, Nate? I did. I, I grew up. Uh, I grew up on 19th Street. I, I, I live on 58th. So I, I've lived, except for some time in the military and uh, my time in college, I've lived most of my adult life within about a five-mile circle. And what branch of the military did you serve in? Uh, I was in the Air Force Reserves from 1997 till 2003. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for your service. Thank you. What's one of the biggest mistakes you've made during your teaching career, and what did you learn from that experience? Man, how much time do you have? So many mistakes. Uh, one of the things that I did early in my career was I tried to uh, push rigor before building relationships, and that's doing things backwards. You have to establish relationships with students uh, before you can, can, can push them to high, to, to high levels uh, of, of, of cognitive demand. But the thing is, is that many people look at the idea of relationships as like, oh, kids have to like me. Like, kids don't have to like me, but kids have to understand that I care about them. And so uh, putting that car before the horse early in my career was really, really difficult uh, and, and made life difficult for me for a couple of years. Uh, the other thing that I say I've made mistakes with in the past is trying to do things as a lone wolf. Uh, as a teacher, particularly a new educator, you're better off when you work with part of a team. You're better off when you collaborate. You're better off when you have somebody to bounce ideas off of. And so uh, doing it on your own is hard, and, and, and you, teaching is too big of a job to do it on your own, and that's something I've, I've learned over time. And that's such an important message for all the new teachers out there. You don't have to be the lone wolf. No, and, and in fact, if you try to be, you're going to burn out. 
And so you don't have to, you don't have to find your connection in your building, right? Like you, you may be the lone wolf in your building, but like in this era of social media that we have, uh, you can find your community online. So like I'm part of the Educolor movement and the Educolor movement uh, is a collection of educators all around the country who are advocating uh, for policy solutions and practices that help promote achievement of kids of color. Uh, I'm a part of called Teachers United. Teachers United is a policy organization based here in Washington State who promotes uh, solutions-oriented policies uh, for, and, and I practice. I'm a graduate of the Evergreen State College. Like, I'm still in touch with my community from Evergreen. Evergreen is a very progressive school. And what I love about Evergreen is that when I'm talking to a Greener grad, like, I know from the second we start a conversation that we both see uh, racism, for example, as a systemic issue instead of a human relations issue. So we have that common ground we can start with. And so if you're in an isolated like location in your practice, you have to find your community outside of your building because if you don't have community, like you're not going to make it in the career field. Nate, you were just one of four individuals who are up for the national title of Teacher of the Year. Tell our listeners what the application process is like and what additional responsibilities does the National Teacher of the Year have? So everybody who's named a regional or territorial teacher of the year, there's 56 of us, uh, are all invited to apply to be national teacher of the year. And so I sent my national teacher of the year application in, in the fall, and then I was notified that I was a finalist uh, a few months later. And then so as a finalist, uh, I flew back to Washington, D.C., to the uh, – the CCSSO, which is the Council of Chief, Chief State School Officers, uh, and I uh, did a round of interviews and delivered a speech with the other finalists from California, Oklahoma, and Connecticut. And it, it's, it's a fascinating process, and what I've really enjoyed about it is the sense of kinship that was built up. Uh, the blog post that I wrote uh, the conversation I'm tired of not having was inspired basically by, a, by the, the meeting that we had, the first meeting of all 56 uh, teachers of the year. Uh, I met a lady from Montgomery County in Maryland, and she, had, she was a former national teacher of the year. And she talked about how she had been in her school for 17 years and had never had a white student. Like, wow. that's how stark the segregation is in Montgomery County. And, like, like that idea was really the impetus and the, the kind of, like, straw that broke the camel's back for me with that blog post. Uh, and so the, 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 uh, the teachers of the year are another built-in community that I have. Uh, we have a Facebook page and, uh, and a Slack channel that we use to share ideas uh, and kind of and, 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 and run uh, policy proposals by. Uh, there's a lady named uh, Audrey, who's the teacher of the year from Massachusetts, and she's running a work-study group among the teachers of the year for, the, uh, for, for how, uh, how we want to shape the implementation of the Every Student Succeeds Act. And so you have this range with 56 people. You have policy walks, you have great speakers, you have great motivators. And so it's, it's, it's another community that I've built in uh, that, that I, I, I can tap into as an educator and professional. And how many times throughout the year will you get together with all of these teachers? Uh, we had our first meetings out in Texas, and then we're going to meet again uh, in Washington, D.C. in May. And then we'll, we're all being invited to the, uh, the Education Commission of the States Conference, which is a policy conference in Washington, D.C. in July. And then we have a Next Steps Conference that happens. Uh, it's kind of helping us plot what comes next for us, and that's going to be in the fall at Princeton. And plus so you four have times. social media. Right, plus social media. So, like, I, I see uh, – in fact, I was just texting with, uh, with Daniel, who's the Teacher of the Year from down in California today, about uh, maybe sneaking to Gettysburg while we're in D.C. next month. 
Now, you will soon be meeting with President Obama at the White House when the National Teacher of the Year is announced. In that moment of excitement, what will you say to the president when you meet him? It's so funny because everybody thinks I have something like really profound planned. Uh, I teach AP government, and I love the idea of trying to get a president or, in Obama's case, possibly an ex-president to come in and guest lecture in my class or Skype into my class and, uh, and talk to my students. Uh, and so my pitch is going to be basically, hey, uh, President Obama, you know uh, President Xi Jinping was in my classroom in September. Uh, you're not going to let him show you up like that, are you? And so uh, that's really what I'm going for. I, I, would have, I would love to have Barack Obama come to Lincoln High School and talk to my kids. That's right. President Xi did visit your classroom in Tacoma, Washington. Not every state teacher of the year can say that they've had the president of China visit their classroom. What was that like? It was madness. Uh, I, I guess so. I, I've gone to China the last two summers, and I've I've taught uh, in a city called Chengdu, which is in western China. And so I actually was had just got back from China when my principal uh, told me in August that like this was a possibility. He's like, "This is a crazy thing. It could happen, but it's probably not going to happen." And then as things got closer, it became more of a probability, and then it became an actual reality. And uh, the entire day was, was, was hilarious. Like, the students were absolutely uh, nervous, but then also on point. Uh, the Chinese Secret Service and American Secret Service don't cooperate because they want redundancy. And so there was so many, like, layers of security and so many, like, people talking into their cufflinks. Um, but like, and it was really early in the year and I hadn't quite, you know, built the relations with the students, but like, they got the gravity of it. Like they, they were amazing. They had really thoughtful questions. Uh, it was, it was a, it was a once in a lifetime experience for them. And, uh, we will have a link on our show notes page, but your local district in Tacoma did a wonderful, uh, short documentary of the assembly that was held for president Xi. Um, Nate, tell our listeners, what type of invitation did President Xi extend to your students at Lincoln High School? So this is the, the best part of the whole experience. And, and again, just for framing, like I, I work at the highest poverty high school in my county. Uh, President Xi has invited 100 students from my school uh, to go back to China uh, next year for like a three-week exchange. And they're going to uh, live with Chinese families and experience Chinese uh, culture. And they're going to be visiting uh, several cities, including, including Shanghai. Uh, and it was so she said one thing during his visit that really hit me about uh, – that I've always kind of thought about China, but he articulated it perfectly. And my kids are going to experience this. And what he said was, if you want to see what China looked like a 1,000 years ago, then go visit Xi'an and see the Terracotta Warriors and, and, and see that, like, like that, all of that. If you want to know what China looked like 500 years ago, go to Beijing. Go to the Forbidden City. And if you want to see the future, go to Shanghai. And so – like he said that through his translator, and I was nodding my head and uh, turned to his translator and used my, my terrible Chinese to say, you know, that that's a really amazing thought. And so when he announced that my students were going to have the opportunity to go to China, like they all looked at me, and I was like, I, I, I didn't see that coming. And so, uh, yeah, we're going to send 100 students, and it's going to be – these are kids who – who there, there's no way they would travel internationally otherwise. Uh, a lot of them don't have passports, uh, and so there's a lot of like paperwork that needs to be done, uh, but we're going to make it a reality, and it's going to be life-changing for them. And how will these students be selected? Uh, there's a process. I, I, I have no idea. Uh, my principals work cut out for them, uh, but they're, they're working on a process right now. And will you be part of that exchange? <laughs> no, 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 no. So I've been to China twice, and I, I, I love China. 
but between you, me, and I guess the podcast audience, uh, the idea of supervising students on international travel uh, <laughs> terrifies me. And so, no, I definitely I'll pass. And when President Xi was visiting your school, tell our listeners, Nate, what he donated to the school. What else, in addition to 100 visitors from your school visiting China? Sure. He, uh, he donated a mini library of, uh, of, of books and software and instructional materials about China. Uh, during the visit, he talked about how similar the United States and China are. Uh, something that stuck out for me, he talks about. Uh, was that so the word for China, the word for China in Chinese is middle kingdom and the word for America in Chinese is uh, is beautiful kingdom and so like there's an idea that like that the Chinese see China as the center of the world but they see America as a place of opportunity uh, in addition to the uh, to the resource library, he also donated several ping pong tables. And like, it's funny to say like ping pong tables, but these are like world class competition grade ping pong tables. And so like, we have one in the staff lounge, one in the music lounge, and a couple other floors. And like, all of a sudden, these kids who who, 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 like, I don't think we're really into ping pong, have become super competitive. And so, like, in the staff lounge, you'll walk in, there'll be a game going, you walk in the hallway. And so, like, ping pong fever's taking over at Lincoln High School. It's really funny to watch. <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. Several years ago, I was a Fulbright recipient, and visiting the schools in Japan, that's like a major pastime, even in Japan, ping pong. Ping pong and badminton. Mm -hmm. Nate, did you have any conversation with the president of China, one-on-one, -on -one, through a translator? Uh I had a very brief uh, – I was able to address the president, and uh, I talked about my travel in China and how much uh, I had enjoyed my travel in China and how much – as a kid – so it was – I spoke to him about uh, – as a kid, when I learned about China, it was this place basically filled with um, you know, thousands of people riding around in packed streets on bicycles and how my pers and, and I remember watching in high school the the handover of Hong Kong and those were kind of the two kind of main ideas I had about China and so when I spoke to him through the translator I talked about those ideas and I talked about how much more um my how much more I saw when I went to China uh so I've been twice like I mentioned earlier over the last two summers and in my travels I visited Beijing, Xi'an, Hong Kong, Chengdu and Macau and and I, it, it's a, it's a fascinating 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 place it's just it's so different than america and so much more dense than america uh but like you can feel like this 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 this, this underpin of this underpin like hustle and like and, and passion that permeates the country and uh and the people are absolutely amazing and so i i basically shared that thought with him and uh he responded through his translator um uh, and, and made fun of my, my, my Chinese uh, through his translator, but it was a, it was a, it was really really amazing. Like, and, and that's the thing. Like, my students talk about this. Like, I addressed the president of China in my own classroom, and now I'm going to small talk with Barack Obama, and then also <laughs> go to a, a, a gala at the vice president's house. Like, I, as a government teacher, like, are you kidding me? That's incredible. Like, this, is, this has been a, a, an amazing year. Your students are very lucky to have you as a teacher with that experience. So what was it like? What's your take on him as a person being the leader of the largest communist country in the world with 1.3 billion people? Um, he knows how to work a crowd. 
and is a very cool customer. It was interesting. So like for the visit, everybody was super dressed up. You know, I was wearing a, a suit. Uh, my principal's in a suit, and he walked in, uh, sport coat, jacket unbuttoned, uh, no tie, and uh, and he he really really owns the space. Uh, I, in, in many ways, when I when I talk to beginning teachers, I talk about how important it is to to, to understand the, the power of your presence and how much you can manage a classroom by proximity, uh, and 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 he does the same way. Uh, when you watch a great speaker speak, uh, they kind of have a way, like or like a great stand-up comedian, uh, they have a, a way uh, that they kind of dominate the stage and and they kind of uh, and and they they they, they 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 pace. And he had that. He's. He's clearly a, a a charismatic man and a very thoughtful man. Yeah, I did see that because during his visit to Microsoft and Bowen, he wore a suit and tie, and I was a little bit curious about why he was a little bit more casual visiting your high school. Yeah, I I, I don't know exactly, but I I liked I liked that he did it. He made he was very approachable. Right. There was a before he he came in, there was some chatter among the students. Like, are we going to be able to shake his hand? I was like, no, no way, you're not shaking the president's hand. Duh. And then uh, when he finished speaking, he reached out, and uh, the kids squealed like it was the Beatles, and it was great. Like that that that's what showed me they understood the gravity of the moment. Like they 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 squealed and they were excited to shake his hand. Right. We'll put that video on the show notes page. I see one piece where he's shaking hands with the students in the classroom in the front row. Was that your classroom? It was. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Nate, you're a founding member of Teachers United. Tell us about this organization and your role with them. Uh, so Teachers United was founded in 2011, and our job and our mission was to uh, propose and put educator voice in the policymaking uh, conversation. What happens far too often is, is that policy is made by the legislature or by school districts, and then it's just kind of just dumped onto teachers with no input. And so we believed that if you could insert educator voice in the policy conversation, you could create better policies that help students and also create less resentment within the career field. And so we tried to stake out kind of a third way uh, between uh, the, 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 labor, the labor voice within the profession and the reform community. And we've, over the last few years, we've proposed policies uh, about teacher professional development. We propose policies about how we'd like to be evaluated. And we're currently working on research on uh, a compensation model for Washington State. And we had our biggest success uh, of ever uh, fairly recently. Uh, Governor Inslee signed House Bill 1345, which is a bill we were heavily involved with creating, uh, and it creates a statewide standard uh, for professional development and says that teacher training should be ongoing, job embedded, and then relevant to a teacher's placement. Uh, we, we spend $8 billion a year on PD, and uh, most of it doesn't do a lot of good and move the needle for kids. Wow. And we know what good PD looks like. And so we're trying to create a system in Washington State where teachers don't have their time wasted with uh, one-size-fits-all sit-and-gets. Does Teachers United have a website? Uh, we do. Uh, we're teachersunitedwa.org. Uh, okay, and we'll have that link too. What is one book you could recommend to our new teacher listeners that would help them become a better teacher? Uh, if you're working in the humanities, Rethinking Schools has a, has a number of publications. Um, I, I have a book called Rethinking Globalization that I've used uh, every year in my career uh, teaching social studies. And uh, the book is aged and a little bit dated, uh, but it, it really has – it provides an amazing view of uh, globalization, 
uh, multinational corporations and capitalism uh, from the perspective of the global south. And so, like within within the book, there's a, an amazing uh, article called "Globalization: The View from Below" by former Haitian President Jean Bertrand d'Aristide. Uh, and there's some really really heart wrenching. Uh, narratives in the book from people who are working in sweatshops uh, in Vietnam and working in maquilladoras along the Mexican border. And uh, I, 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 use, I grab that book at least twice a year. Uh, if I can steal a second book, the other book that I would recommend uh, to every teacher is Harry Wong's The First Days of School. Uh, it's really interesting uh, how that book has remained relevant throughout my career. Uh, my wife and I have a ritual where we sit down basically the, uh, the night before school starts each year and we read through it. And just, it's just a good reminder about like the importance of routines. Me too. Uh, when I have kids hand in papers, they hand in papers the same way every time. When I pass out papers, I pass out papers the same way every time. Uh, and when you create really strong routines in a classroom, uh, you don't have to explain as much because like, it becomes automatic. Right. I'm a big fan of Harry Wong. I picked up his book maybe 20, 25 years ago when I first started teaching. And to this very day, what I still do that he recommended was we call the parents when the kids have good news to share. And through oh, the I years, love doing that. Absolutely. I've had parents cry. I've had parents wonder what's going on when they see the schools calling with caller ID, and that's what I've been known for. And every child will let you know whether or not Mr. Arno has called their home yet. I, I really love making positive phone calls, and when you make a positive phone call, uh, you, you, you win the parents' trust. And when you win the parents' trust, when you have to make a negative phone call down the road, uh, your parents know that you have their best interest at heart. And it becomes and so much easier. That's especially important mm -hmm. for new teachers who might not feel comfortable making that phone call, but it's something that you definitely win the parents' trust, just like Nate had said. So um, Harry Wong is the second author. The first book was Rethinking Globalization. Who wrote that book, Nate? Uh, it was Bill Bigelow and Bob Peterson. Okay. Nate, what is one internet resource that has helped you become a better teacher that you could recommend to our new teachers? Uh, I use Twitter to death. And so I use Twitter as a means of getting information out to my students. So instead of wasting time with announcements, I can like make a slide and put the slide on the Twitter feed. Uh, I use Twitter to extend my learning day. So if we're talking about uh, separation of powers or checks and balances, I can tweet an article out that evening and kind of tie that and tie that article back to the work. And like, I believe if, if my students are reading the Atlantic magazine at 6 PM, I'm winning. Um, <laughs> and then also uh, via Twitter. Yeah, absolutely. And, and via Twitter, I'm also able to communicate and share my practice with other people. Uh, there's a, a Twitter chat called hashtag high school gov chat that I participate in. And uh, I'm constantly sharing and stealing ideas there. Uh, but Twitter is just, it's, just, it's, it's my number one, uh, instructional uh, resource and, and, and way of sharing and, and, and stealing from others. How many tweets would you say you send out in a given week? Oh, so on my classroom Twitter feed, five or six. On my personal one, probably 10. Although I tend to tweet a little bit more during soccer season. Uh, so especially if the Sounders are losing, then I tweet a lot more. <laughs> Do you have an inspirational teaching quote to share with our listeners? Uh, I have two signs on my on my wall that if you didn't understand me in the context of my classroom would seem uh, very, very harsh. Uh, and one sign says, I must work hard, we must work harder. And that's how I've taken from Animal Farm. And so I teach freshmen every year in my AP Human Geography class and they read Animal Farm. And there's always this kind of awesome moment where uh, 
the posters up there all the time, but about halfway through the year when they're reading, they look up and they're like, wait a second. And so um, I have that up on my wall. And then um, we have an amazing football coach at our, at our building. And uh, he talks about how important it is to uh, raise men instead of uh, raising football players. And uh, I, I love working with him. He's willing to lose a game uh, to, to teach a character lesson to a student. And uh, he just talks about how nobody pities you. Uh, my students come from really rough circumstances, but like nobody pities them. And if they aren't prepared academically, if not prepared socially, if they're not prepared for life, then society has a plan for them. And that plan is uh, minimum wage labor. That plan is uh, a menial kind of getting by income. Uh, that plan and for a lot of the young males is incarceration, uh, a shorter life expectancy and premature death. And so uh, nobody pities my students. And so um, I don't pity them. I, I care for them and I love them. Uh, but like, I also uh, hold them to a, a high uh, level of expectations. And uh, yeah, we, I must work hard. You must work harder. And nobody pities you or two times in my classroom. Yes, Animal Farm. I teach fifth grade, but my high school son just read that with his class. It's a timeless book. Like it, it's 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 always relevant. Um, I it's relevant looking at 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 at, uh, at World War II. It's relevant looking during the Cold War. It's relevant looking at the American election right now. Like it's, it's always relevant. You must be having a field day in class with politics this year. Oh, you have no team. idea. Yeah, it, it's I I have to calm them down sometimes. Like the something will happen and they'll come in the room and I'm like, you're absolutely right. That's amazing. I saw that too. I read that too. But like that's not our focus right now today. Today we're working on. No, my, my kids are 100% locked into the election. And uh, the the one thing I try to push them is, uh, it's a mistake to only pay attention to politics every four years. Uh, the midterm elections matter. Uh, right. The midterm elections can either strengthen a president or cripple a president. And then also that local politics matters uh, probably more than national politics. Like the day-to-day of my lives, the day-to-day lives of my students is influenced more by the Metro Parks Board and the school board and the city council than is vice president. And so I, I try to create like an ongoing sense of civic obligation and activist citizenships and keep them tuned in uh, constantly to politics. But like a circus is a circus and this year is amazing. And so uh, <laughs> my, my kids, my, like what? I'm I'm contemplating organizing a summer watch party for the Republican National Convention because I, I believe it is going to be that big of a circus and like the kids are down like like let's, let's meet up and watch and so like I'm creating political nerds and I love it. That's great. That's great. What's the proudest moment you can recall about being a classroom teacher? Ah oh, man, so the the proudest moment I think I've had was actually on the alumni support tour. Uh, we sat down the first night at Central Washington University, and I sat down uh, with about, about 10 kids over pizza, and I just went to each one, and I was like, did you feel prepared? And they were like, yes, yes, yes. And I was like, give me some examples. And he talks about how, like, the first day uh, of the law and justice classes, uh, the professor talked talk about John Locke and, and Thomas Hobbes, and, like, the kids, like, look at each other, they're like, oh, we got this. <laughs> um, just the, the idea that I'm, I have – I, I, the idea that I, I'm helping take kids who probably wouldn't be going to college at Lincoln High School, like, that's what we're, doing. we're taking kids who 10 years ago probably wouldn't be going to college. We're taking kids who, if they went to other schools, probably wouldn't be going to college, and we're getting them to college and making them successful. Uh, that, that's, that's my proudest moment, and I, 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 I relish that moment. And how long have you been doing the alumni support tour? 
Uh, we've been well, so we've we've done the full uh, six six hundred and fifty mile triangle. Uh, we've done that once. Then we've done the round trip to, to Spokane a second time. And then we've done a couple of jaunts up to Seattle to University of Washington. And so depending how you, you count it, we've done it either twice or four times. Okay. So have those kids graduated college yet or no? No, no. So they, they're all – so the, the first group that we visited, when we went for the first time, those kids are now sophomores. But then when we went and visited those kids – uh, there were some Lincoln alums from the past who were there. Um, I've taught at Lincoln for seven years, but I spent my first few years working with uh, with freshmen. Right. And so my first group of kids is going to be graduating. My first group of like seniors who I work with is going right. to be graduating next year. You know, you're going to have to visit these kids now when they graduate and attend their graduation no, absolutely. ceremony. <laughs> no, absolutely. I know you will. I know you will. Nate, you're ready for the final minute before the final bell? Absolutely. Okay, and we'll be back after this announcement. Teacherlingo.com is an online marketplace where educators can buy, sell, and share teaching resources with one another while earning royalties as high as 85%. Standard membership is absolutely free and allows you to earn a higher commission compared to other sites. Premium membership is only $49 and allows you to earn 85% royalty with zero transaction fees. Whether you're a new teacher or a veteran teacher, why not supplement your income with proven activities and lesson plans that you've already created at TeacherLingo.com? Okay, ready, Nate? Yep, I'm ready. Morning person or night owl? Morning person. I'm a teacher. You got to be. Mac or PC? Linux. Favorite book from your childhood? Uh, A abridged and then eventually an unabridged copy of Moby Dick. First paying job? Uh, Working for my parents. First real job working at UPS, like Brown Truck UPS. One television show you try to watch every week. Ooh, uh, ooh, ooh, meet the press. Latest music download or song playing on your iPod? Uh, Relationship of Command, an album by At The Drive-In. One famous person you would invite for dinner, either living or dead? Richard Nixon, hands down. It's a snow day in Washington State. What will you do with this unexpected day off from school? Great papers. The next item on your bucket list? I don't know. I've had such a great life. Like I, I, I feel so blessed. Uh, maybe visit Australia. And there's the final bell. Nate, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Uh, they can follow either me or my classroom on Twitter. I'm at Nate underscore bowling, and then my classroom is Lincoln underscore AP underscore gov. Or they can check out my blog. Uh, I do a lot of writing about education, and it's NateBowling.com. Thank you again, Nate, for talking with us on the New Teacher Podcast. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. There he is, Nate Bolin, the Washington State Teacher of the Year. Thanks, Nate. Next time on the New Teacher Podcast, a Pennsylvania Teacher of the Year, who is a former enrichment teacher, now working with bugs in the library. Here's a clip of my talk with Anthony Grisillo. So if you draw a circle with a papermate pen and put the termites in the middle of it, they will walk to that line and follow it around. Wow. It's really a cool thing. So... You know, I showed this to them, and I just asked them the question, why? And I walk away. <laughs> so <laughs> they, uh, they, you know, the cool thing about activities like this is I had students that were, you know, struggling learners who just loved bugs and totally got into it right away. And they were the ones who actually were able to identify the insects. How cool is that? Well, that's our 16th show, and thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the show and leave us a review on iTunes. This is the New Teacher Podcast, and I'm your host, Anthony Arno. Be well.